Uh, you guys are all aware, I, I believe most of us aware of, of um, you know, what a Trojan horse is. And uh, in Greek mythology, history, you know, the Greeks tried to sack Troy. They were unable to. Um, siege works didn't accomplish it. And so finally they pull back and they, they make this giant wooden horse that is hollow on the inside. And uh, Greek soldiers are in it. They give it as a gift to Troy. Uh, the, the giant horse is, you know, rolled in. We're not sure, you know, it's rolled in. And then inside these soldiers, when it's nightfall, they crawl out and they go. And it's not like there's enough soldiers in the horse to destroy the city. There's not. There's enough soldiers in the horse to open the city gate. And then in comes the Greek army to sack Troy. Now, historians, of course, you know, it's not... That's not history, factual per se, mixed in with all this Greek mythology. And so they're careful to not call it history, but the lesson of a Trojan horse is undeniable. The the reality that this great city fell from within. And if you look at history across thousands of years, cities, nations, kingdoms, most often collapse and fall, not because they were attacked and overtaken, but because they were corrupted from within. And you all, it's the same with the church. It's the same with us. That uh, James has already shown us, persecution, like if, you know, if laws are passed and suddenly, you know, we can't gather and worship, you know, publicly like this. And I mean this when I say it, Listen, that'll do nothing to thwart the church of God. It's what's within that will damage and hinder the work of God. And and what does that mean? Well, it's us. (laughs) It's those of us in the church. There are Trojan horses in our church, in the church. And he's gonna address, James is gonna address it in the early church that he says, this is within you. And you guys need to be very, very careful with these things because it's this which will destroy and hamper and harm the church. Last week, Eric, and I love the way this is flowing out, Eric walked us through the first 10 verses of chapter four. If you're not there yet, go to James chapter four. And he walked us through those first 10 verses in which uh, we, we, we noted that the problems within, you know, think of that on a personal level. He says the problems within, it's called sin. And, and, and it's the sin within our hearts. And, and, and Eric walked us through wholehearted repentance, you know, and I wish I had the board up here. We would do it again in a sense, but that board's being used right now with some 100 guys that are at a, at a, at a retreat around that. But we walk through, you know, the problems in here, not ever out there on a personal level. And please understand, James is gonna address it here to say it's also this way on a corporate level. I'm gonna start in verses 11 and 12. And uh, we're gonna go all the way to 17. I'm gonna give you a heading for each of these sections. There's two sections that we're gonna look at. So I'll repeat this uh, as, as I go through it. It's never uh, comfortable to kind of, you know, look, to look in and have your dirty laundry kind of hung out there for everyone to see. But oh, is it necessary? Oh, is it good biblically and right? Well, there's two Trojan horses amongst us. The first one, I'll, I'll name it, I'll give it a statement around it, but the first one is slander. 
boy, you know, it's our words again. It's like James will not let go of this thing about our words, will he? Because our words are so powerful for harm and for good. But the first would be slander, that is speaking against one another. That'd be the heading for this, these two verses. Slander, the first Trojan horse, slander, speaking against one another. Look again, what Mandy just read, verses 11 and 12. He writes, do not speak against one another, brethren. Now, the reason he says that to these small home churches is because they were. I mean, that's why he's addressing it, because they were. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Before addressing what James means, let me address what he doesn't mean. I think that it's my, it, I'll say this, it's my tendency, you know, I read that and, and it can be our tendency to go, yeah, he's, he's simply saying what his brother Jesus said in Matthew 7. Uh, look, don't judge lest you be judged. And it's kind of like, okay, James is saying what he said. We don't, we're not to judge each other. Now, what I want you to know is that's not, that's not what James is saying because that's not what Jesus was saying. And so I want us to understand this verse in its context and it helps us understand, and we have to do that, we have to understand Jesus' words in its context. He does not mean that you and I cannot, should not, must, you know, it's like you must not come to another Christian and say, you know, that's sin, that's wrong. You must not address someone when they're out of line, off the reservation. That is, a, that is not what this is saying and that's not what Jesus was saying. And that's why, you know, if you're a guest here, we, we teach through a book because we always wanna stay in the context of a phrase that's said and in the greater context. When someone comes to you, and, 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 and people have come to me, and I'm sure they come to you as well, and they may say, you know, look, the Bible says this, and they give you this verse and say, that's why you shouldn't do that. I'm always weary when someone just says to me, the Bible says, and they give me one verse. Because the Bible's a big book. And you've given me one verse and don't say the Bible says, you can say this verse says this. And, and, and of course, then we wanna challenge and we wanna go, well, does that verse really say it? And the only way you can know that is to go, well, what's around that verse? What was, what was that verse? What's the context of the book? What book is that verse in? What genre is that book? Uh, where does that fall in redemptive history? What does the whole Bible say? If you're gonna just use that one verse. And so on this verse, let's take the verse in Matthew, okay? Jesus says, do not judge, so you will not be judged. You know, to, to take just that phrase and say, so we can't judge each other, i.e., we can't confront each other in sin. What's James doing right now? Literally, I mean this, what's he doing? He's confronting the body, he's confronting us. Um, what Jesus says in that verse has to be seen with what he says in the verse, which goes on to say, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. Oh, oh okay, so it's, it's not like you just can't confront someone in sin. It's, it's in the way you do that, you will be judged. And then he goes on to say, don't judge if you have a log in your eye. Oh, Jesus didn't say, look, you can't confront someone and don't ever confront another brother in sin. He didn't say, he said, be careful how you do that and don't do it if you have a log in your own eye, you got the sin in your own eye and you're calling it out in someone else. 
And if we're gonna step back again and go, what's the whole context of that? You go, well, whoa, wait a minute. In John 7, 24, there were people making misjudgments about Jesus. And Jesus said in John 7, 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So now suddenly you gotta go, wait, in this verse, Jesus says judge, which is it? When you put it all together and you say, well, you, you, you don't judge appearances. You, you're careful how you judge. You take the other epistles that speak of us confronting one another and loving each other by speaking truth with grace. It's our duty. It is our responsibility, you all, to do with each other what James is doing, us to, doing for us here and calling out sin. Well, what's, what's he talking about then when James says, uh, don't uh, speak against, or don't judge someone? Well, he's talking about what I think we would assume in a sense that he's talking about outside of that, and that would be words that are harmful and hurtful of another, words that are diminishing. That's a good way to think about it. It's a word, words that are diminishing of another, another human being, a person, to their heart rather than encouraging to them. Don't speak against two English words. It's only one Greek word, kata laleo. It's just one Greek word, kata against laleo, speak. Against speak, don't against speak. Don't slander, let's use words for me. Don't, don't, don't slander someone, don't defame them, don't talk down, don't say words that diminish them. Don't speak degradingly. It also is used in context where it's, you know, don't even grumble privately about someone. Three weeks ago, I was teaching uh, th verses three, one through 12, which is the definitive section in the whole Bible on the tongue, you know, and then it's, you know, we build out of that. And I said this, and I quote myself, quote, what James is saying is that to speak ill inappropriately, wrongly about another human being is to speak ill inappropriately, wrongly, about God, end quote. And I believe I said that and I believe it's true. Having spent, you know, two weeks now in James 4, 11 through 17 and being reminded, oh, don't speak against a brother. I have been so uh, painfully but wonderfully convicted that um, I, I said that, but I, I, I violate that a lot. That I do say things about people to other people that that it, the word my words are not um, uplifting of that person, but they're diminishing, quite frankly, of that person. And I've I've sought I've sought um, relief, you know, like yeah, but you know I'm a as a leader I have to say these things in order to lead, or yeah, but what I'm saying is true, and I need. But you know, there's no relief from my heart in that, quite frankly. It's sin. I'd like to say it's, you know, that's what I did back when I was in college, but that's not, I'm, you know, I'm not talking about in college. I'm not talking about when I lived in Little Rock, you know, 30 years ago. I'm not talking about 20 years ago, having moved here to, to help plant a church. You know, I used to do that in the early days of the church. I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about in present day, I speak against other people, I do. And it's not that I'm saying I speak against people that live in another town or I read something in a magazine about Christians or a Christian here and a Christian leader and I say, the truth of the matter is I speak against you, some of you 
I have spoken to other people about in ways that were not, I, should, I did not, that was not right. And you may say, well, um, man, you're, you're the teaching pastor. You know, you're leading us. You, you, you shouldn't do that. And I go, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I have a sin problem, you know, which is what James says we all have. And I don't say that with, with, with gladness. I say it with deep sadness that I do. I'm telling you guys, I've said things about some of you to someone else or leaders within this community. I'll say things and, you know, I come back and I'm, it's haunting me and I'm going, that didn't need to say that. You know, in terms of clarity, is it, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about gossip? Yes. Just think of the tongue and everything we can do with the tongue. Gossip, to say things about someone. I'm going to tell someone, hey, did you know, and I've got this, that so-and-so, and I'm saying something to someone, and you know, like the, like the proverb says, it's like these words of a whisper are like dainty morsels. They go down to the innermost parts of your belly. Isn't it weird about gossip that it feels good, and then it feels terrible, but it feels good when you gossip, when you have a piece of information about someone. It just does. I'm just telling you in the flesh, it's like, that was neat. I got to say that to that person. It's sick, quite frankly. Is it slander? Yes. It would be to say to someone else, hey, hey, do you know, can I tell you something about so-and-so? And I'm saying something that's not true about that person, you know? And and what I'm saying, and what I tend to do, quite frankly, is I, I'll say something to people because I want, I want this person to understand why I don't like this person or why this person's wrong, and that's wrong. That in itself, what I'm doing is wrong. And what's important to note in this is that gossip and slander, and, and, and what James is talking about here is, it's, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. See, this is where we can get tripped up. You go, well, look, I'm just saying what's true. Okay, but then nowhere in the Bible does it says everything that's true you need to say about another person. It's just not there. And, and, and we can hide behind, well, it's true. Well, that doesn't matter if it's true. You know what? You, you've probably heard this. I have, and it's not bad advice. Before you say something, ask these three questions. Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? That's not bad, and I'm not slamming that. I'm, I go, that's good advice, but I will say it doesn't go far enough in terms of what James says. Because according to the Bible, I would say this, you really, the first question to ask is not, is it true? Because that's what I'm saying. It doesn't matter if it's true. That doesn't mean you need to say it to somebody about someone else. So what, 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 what's, a, what's a phrase or a question we could ask before I open my mouth? And I think in our context, what I would suggest James is saying is, before you open your mouth, there's one question to ask, and it's, it's this. Is it love? Just stop right there. Is it love? I say that because notice James says, uh, in, in, uh, he says, the one who speaks against a brother speaks against and judges the law. And, and the law in this context, is that the 10 commandments, the law? Well, not specifically. It's buried within that. But we stay in the context. Say, what's, what law has James been talking about? And if you look at don't turn there, I'll just read it. In chapter two, verse eight, he says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Oh, okay, the royal law. If I, if I open my mouth and my words are not love, and again, you know, love doesn't mean, do you love your kids and you can be firm with your kids, you call your kids out. So love's not just ooey gooey, no, no. If it's not love, then I'm judging the law. What do you mean I'm judging law? Well, I'm saying there's a better way than love. Uh, I, I, and I'm gonna say it. 
And, and, and when I, right when I do that, I've judged the law when there's only one lawgiver, God, and only one, the, the one lawgiver can execute justice around the law to save or destroy. We, we don't have that right. So God has said the law is love. When I open my mouth to anyone, and especially if I open my mouth to someone about someone, is it love? And I'm just telling you, the answer for me is no. A lot of times it's not. You know, God's the only one that can know what's in someone's heart. Think about that. I think that's carried within this sense of only one lawgiver. I always like to say to myself, well, I know what you were thinking. Well, I don't. Well, I, know what the, I know what she meant by that. Well, well, you don't, ultimately. Only God does. Let's go on to the second <laughs> Trojan horse. That one's in here. The second one is presumption. Presumption. Speaking presumptuously about our plans. That would be the second heading if you're taking notes. The second Trojan horse, verses 13 to 17. Note he says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, your presumption. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him, it is sin. Let's not take the edge off what he says. When we make plans presumptuously apart from God, it's evil. It's sin. It's an interesting, I find it interesting that, you know, we often go to this verse 17 about sins of, not sin, you know, sins of commission or sins we do. And we say, you know, there are sins of omission. You know the right thing to do and you don't do it. And we kind of say, you know, James 4, 17. But notice the context. And, and that's, that is true. But I'm telling you, the context has to do with presuming upon making plans that are presumptuous. If you do that and you know it's not right and you still do it, that's sin. That's what he's saying here. Let's start with, with presumption, you know, definition-wise. It's, it's to undertake without clear justification. It's to say something, it's to do something when you, have, you don't have the right nor the, the justification for what you say or you do. Um, I think it's interesting that James, when he says, you know, he's, he really is addressing things that are happening in the church that are damaging to the church. I get why he goes to the tongue because that we do, we just, we slash each other with our tongues. But I just find it kind of interesting that he would, he would go to presumption as the second thing. It's kind of like almost, isn't that kind of innocuous? Apparently not. Not when we make plans apart from God's will. Verse 13, come now, this phrase, come now, it's only used twice in the whole Bible. And it's used here and it's used in chapter five, verse one. And it, I, I, it has the sense to which you feel it when you read it. It has the Greek sense of, Come on. And that's what he's saying. He's, he's chiding that he's, really? I, I have to say this to you guys. You know, you know, it's that sense that he brings. He's quite 
strong in this statement. There were entrepreneurs, there were businesswomen and you know, people that were in the marketplace that did trading. It's just all this is in the church, just like in our church, just like in every church, it exists. And, and there were some who were making these plans and they were speaking about them. And it's like, you know, we're gonna start a company and we're gonna build it up and we're gonna sell it and we're all gonna make a lot of money and hey, we're gonna give 10% to the, you know, they, they were just making these plans. And he says, well, it's evil and it's sin if they're made presumptuously. And then he notes three things that indicate their presumption, so to speak. And that's the three things I will, I will review or I will talk about here. The first one is, they miss the fact, they're missing the fact that, number one, tomorrow is not guaranteed. Look at verse 14. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. I know I'm speaking to the choir when I say this, but this is how most truth is, isn't it? It's always there, it's right there, but we just miss it for whatever reasons. We need to understand also, can I say this in a broad statement? This is in no way, James is saying, stop planning. That is not at all what he's saying. God himself is a planner. He executes his plan. So it's not saying, made in his image, we're to plan. But he's to say, he's saying, do you understand that your plans, all your plans are contingent? Every plan you make is a contingent plan. And I'd bring it right down to this. Do you understand that the plan you have when I'm done, when we're done, and you walk out those doors and you guys have already set up, you know, we're gonna see you at lunch. Do you understand that you may not? That, that's not guaranteed. Our plans are contingent plans. Contingent upon what? On God's will. We're to bring that attitude to our planning. No one is guaranteed tomorrow. In the same way, he says, life is short. That's number two, verse 14. Life is short. Again, we're in verse 14. You are just like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. What book did we spend 16 weeks in that's summarized by that phrase? What book? Ecclesiastes. We spent 16 weeks in Ecclesiastes and we could have spent one minute in it and just said, look, you guys read Ecclesiastes and here's the message. Life is short. <laughs> you know, and that's, that is the message. It's no surprise James goes there. You know, the Bible does not encourage a morbid preoccupation with death, not at all, but it absolutely encourages the developing of a deep conviction that life is gift. Life is gift. If you wake up tomorrow and you get dressed and you go about your day, do you understand that it's gift? Right now, it's not guaranteed and it's gift. We don't, it doesn't matter, and we say life is short, and they're both very similar, aren't they? But it, life is short. It doesn't matter if you live 100 years. It's still short. That's not the point. He's speaking of physical life, by the way. And we know there's physical life, like right now, my flesh and body, and I'm alive right now in front of you, and you're alive looking at me. He's saying this physical life is short in comparison to eternal life by which we all will participate in. You will, whether you know Christ or not, whether you bow the knee to Christ or not, your soul and my soul, who we truly are, will live forever. Will live forever. And you'll be forever with God or forever apart from God. 
And if you lived a thousand years, I mean, let's look, you know, if he says life is short, that means it's been true from the beginning of the Bible to the end, right? How long did Methuselah live? You know, a thousand, nine hundred years. You know what I'm saying? You could live nine hundred years, and the answer to Methuselah would still be your life is short. Why? Because nine hundred years, in in the comparison to an eternity, is a blink of an eye. It's not even the blink of an eye. And we, he's saying, when you make your plans, which is good to plan, please understand tomorrow's not guaranteed, and life is short. So, so all of a sudden. Here's what the world does. And I'm just thinking of this right now. I think this is true. Here's what we do apart from Christ. Okay, tomorrow's not guaranteed. Life is short. Get out the bucket list, you know. But that's not what James says. I think James says, get out the Bible and let's find out God's will. That's what he's saying. What's God's will? Let's plan that way. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. Life is short. Number three, God is in control, not you. God is in control, not you. Now we go, okay, I already know that. And I know we do, but we don't live like it. It's just our flesh, you know, takes over. We don't live knowing, you know, I'm not in control. God, God you're in control, not me. And I think one of the ways that this is so uh, evident, at least to me, is, uh, is when we travel. And I think I came up with this. I think it came to my mind because last week when I was teaching at Brentwood, it was the week before that everyone was at 30A except me, you know, or some of y'all is the same way, you know, when you travel. And it may be you were somewhere else, but I was thinking of travel because it, it is when we travel. And, you know, most of us in this room, you know, get to do some travel, and, and you know, most of us have flown, you get to fly, but have, have you ever noticed what happens to people and what comes out of them when, when, let's just say, flight plans get changed? Oh my gosh, it's embarrassing. I've embarrassed myself. You know, when you're talking to the lady at the counter or you see someone talking to her, and I mean, they are giving it, man, or the guy at the counter, they're just, oh my, I can't believe that guy. I can't believe that. They're saying that to that person as if that person caused the thunderstorms in Texas that kept the plane. It's like, oh my gosh, they're just coming, you know. And, and then I can tend to do that because you just feel like, look, I gotta be at work tomorrow. Do you understand the world will fall apart if I don't get home, you know? And that's how we, it's just like, oh man, and you realize I'm not in control. Or even this lunacy, which I have heard when they say, look, there's a equipment malfunction you know, so we we're ground the plane and then the person says, I, they need to fly that plane. And you wanna go, no, you don't understand. There's a, a, this plane, it could kill you and yet you're demanding to get on the plane. You know, it's kind of crazy. And this just comes out. I think it comes out for many of us. And, and, and that's a place where we go, you know, I am just not in control of the world. And you're gonna go through this upcoming week and you're gonna have things happen in your life. That it's coming, I'm telling you. And it's gonna remind you, you are not in control. But God is in control. And so when you plan your, your year or your business or your life or your family, then you put that under the heading, Lord, if it be your will. Now, I wanna note that this exhortation, Lord, if it be your will, there's no part of our life that's excluded. There's no part of life that's excluded. Because I, our tendency, again, can be this. 
wow, Dave talked about, you know, going to uh, Slavonsky Road and the church there. You know, hey, let's pray about this if it's the Lord's will. That's, that's very important and I encourage you to do that. But our tendency can be, let's pray about that mission trip if it's the Lord's will. But then we come over another part of life and I go, you know, should we buy that for the house? And, and you go, that's not, is that the Lord's will? Let's spend this money. Let's send our kids to, let's go to, let's uh, plan our vacation. Let's, there's no area of life exempt for the follower of Jesus from Lord, if it's your will, every area of life. There's no secular and sacred. There's none of that. It's life, gift from God, no tomorrow guaranteed. Life is short. Lord, here's the neat thing. God is a planner. And his plan is being fulfilled and accomplished. And our greatest life is joining God's plans and purposes, not our own. That's where this takes us. It takes us into the jet stream of redemptive history to say, you know, I'm on this planet for a reason. And it's really not to fulfill my bucket list. God may or may not allow that, but it's really for me to join God in what he's doing. And I get to join the creator of the universe to fulfill his kingdom purposes in my lifetime. And we do that when we say, Lord, is it your will? And we join his will.